Good morning, Bridge Church. Good morning. So good to be in the house of the Lord with you today. So many of you that are joining us live online, we just want to say thank you for joining us this morning. Super excited about what God is doing and what God is saying to us um, in this church. Now, last week we jumped back into our Set Apart series in the book of 1 Peter. And this entire series, it serves as a reminder of the kind of people that God has called us to be a holy nation, a chosen people, a peculiar people, a royal priesthood, a group of people that are set apart because we serve a king, we serve a king who was, though he was in this world, he was not of this world. And he's making us citizens, citizens of his own kingdom. So people in the kingdom of God operate differently than the people that are of the kingdom of this world. And see, last week, Pastor Ethan broke down to us how kingdom wives should treat their husbands and how they honor the king in doing that. And this week, we're going to talk about kingdom husbands and how they should honor their king and also honor their wives in the way that they live and they carry themselves. So we're going to be in Wives and Husbands, part two, part two. Now, the first, can we acknowledge something? Can we acknowledge that, that as a society... That, that we're really failing at marriage. That, that there's not a really strong, godly marriage culture that we see um, as an example for us, I would say, in this generation. It's something that, that if, you, if, if you have seen it, consider yourself privileged because this is something that we haven't really seen much. Just years ago, the divorce rate in America was 50%. It means half of the people that were getting married, were their marriages were ending in divorce. Many of us just don't have frame work for what it means to have a strong marriage. And the grace of God, by the grace of God, you know, I've, I've been married um, almost 21 years. Um, five days from now, me and my wife will be celebrating 21 years of marriage. And um, here's a picture of us um, on, on our wedding day. Um, you can take a look at this picture of us on our, on our wedding day. Yes, um, look at these young, young people, these, these newlyweds. Um, that, that you see here joyously uh, celebrating marriage during this time. And I will say for you that uh, marriage, marriage is not for punks. It's something that, 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 that can be very tough because on that wedding day, when you look in that picture, me and my wife said, I do. We said, I do to one another. Now, what that meant, which we didn't understand at this time because we were, we were very young, what that meant is that, that my wife said, I do, because we're talking about Husbands today. My wife said, I do to a, a dude that was 22 years old, but when she didn't realize, she was saying, I do to a 32 year old guy and a 42 year old guy, and God help her, a, a 62 and an 82 year old guy. She was saying, I do to this guy in all these different phases. I was saying, I do to my wife in all those different places. And the thing about this wedding day, it's a great day. It's a lot of celebration. There's people that are excited for us and they were celebrating with us during that time. But it's just that. It's a, what marriage actually looks like is more like a journey. So let me show you this other picture that you'll see of me and my wife. And in this picture, what you see is us on a roller coaster. You see my wife, and I think it's a woman in the background. She's hilarious, and she's kind of looking at my wife, and she's screaming, and I'm holding my camera up on this, um, on this picture. But... In a lot of ways, marriage is very much like a roller coaster. Because why? Because you're going to have some high highs. 
You're going to have some low lows. There are going to be some twists and turns all along the way. There are going to be some fast days. There are going to be some, some very slow days. There are going to be tears, and there's going to be some kicking, and there's some screaming, and sometimes there are going to be some laughing, and, and there's going to be joy. But, but if you're going to survive this roller coaster of marriage, this journey that you're on, Here's the thing, you got to spend more time fighting for each other than you spend fighting against one another. Now, for many of you, you know, when we talk about marriage, I know some people begin to check out. And I get it, you know, 60%, according to our survey, 60% of our people at our church are single people. And some single people, they say, you know, I'll listen to all that, I'll study all that stuff, you know, you know once, I get, once I get married. Once I get a husband and wife, I'll look at that. And let me tell you, that, that's silly. Because that, that, that's the equivalent of you running off the dock at Wrightsville Beach or Carolina Beach and you jumping into the water saying, oh, I'm about to learn how to swim. That, that's not going to be wise and I'm, I promise you that's not going to work out for you. Then some of you are saying, you know, hey, Pastor Chris, I'm content with getting single and I want you to know I'm content with being single. And if you said that, listen, I affirm that because guess who? Jesus was a single man. He was complete. He was whole. I think he modeled what it was like to give your life um, to, to, to the Lord and, and, and have a, a productive life and have a meaningful life without having to be married. I think Jesus um, made that very clear because I, I don't want you to think for one second that married people are, are closer to God. Actually, the Bible says, you know, Paul lets us know that actually you will be more concerned with the affairs of this world. So no, you're not necessarily closer to God if you're married or the goal of the Christian faith is not to be married. So let, let, let me make that point very clear. But I do also want to say that Jesus himself attended weddings. Jesus himself is the one that uh, inspired the text about husband and wives. And Jesus was an advocate for godly marriages. So if you're single, I do want you to be an advocate for godly marriages. Just like me as a married person, I'm an advocate for you being single. But then there's also some people here, um, at least in our church, 4.5% of our people are divorced. And I just want to say for you, I know for some of you, when you hear, start hearing messages about marriage, some of you might begin to tune out because you're like, hey, I tried that. It failed. It, it, didn't, it didn't work out. And I'll, I'll, I'll let you know this. I know some divorced people, and some divorced people can actually give you some of the best uh, advice and not what not to do in a marriage. And then there's some that remained faithful, did everything that they, they possibly could do, and they ended up divorced. And they can remind you of what it means to be faithful even in the midst of, in, in the midst of circumstances that just seemed like they just were not going to work out for the good at all. And I just want to let you know that if that's you, I need to remind you that divorce is something that happened to you is not your identity. You need to always remember that you're, you're not, and this is everybody, you're not what happened to you. You're you're not what, what you've done or what somebody else has done to you because in Christ, you are a new creation. And God's word is still going to be God's word. So let God be true as if every other man was a lie. And some people might say, Pastor Chris, this is common sense. I, this is how you're supposed to treat your wife. You're like, come on. Like, what, 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 what are we talking about here? I want to let you know that even though you say it's common, I'm going to let you know right now, it's not common even for the best of us. So you're going to hear today about how people have, um, you're going to hear today about how myself personally have fallen short in many ways, even as a, as a pastor. Because here's the thing, 
These are deeply spiritual matters that we're talking about right here. And a lot of, a lot of time, I've wasted a lot of time trying to, 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 to handle and speak into and believe some things that were spiritual. I was trying to handle that in my flesh, trying to handle that in a way that, that is not spiritual at all. And you're not going to be able to handle these things with mere human mechanisms. You actually need godly knowledge, and you'll actually see more of that here in a minute. So before we go any further, let me just go, let me give you a couple disclaimers about marriage really quickly because sometimes we jump into marriage, we start talking about it. There's some overarching things that we really need to remember. So one of the first things is this. Marriage is a covenant. It's not a contract. Marriage is a covenant, not a contract. Most people go into marriages with this very contractual mentality, this, this contractual worldview that we get from, not from the Lord, we get this from, from the world. See, contracts scream one central thing, conditions, conditions. It says, as long as you do this, I'll do that. Or if you don't do this, I'm certainly not doing that. See, contracts are based conditions. And don't get me wrong, I thank God for legal contracts because they attempt, listen, attempt to provide you with a sense of protection from people that might have ill will toward you. See, contracts are good for business, but they're extremely dangerous for marriages. They're good for business, but they're dangerous for marriages. Because see, the problem with contracts is that they don't make people better. They don't make people better. They just remind you of how prone you are to sin against one another. But covenants, on the other hand, they're not grounded in conditions. Covenants are grounded in promises. It's grounded in promises. And who established these promises? God. So a covenant is established in something that God established. And if God establishes it, God will see you through it. That means God is the one that will keep it together. That's why the Bible says what God has put together, when he's talking about marriage, let no man put asunder. See, contracts limit your liability, but covenants give you unlimited liability. See, we don't take covenants as serious as God. And that's why we don't actually get a chance to really experience and see the be of a covenant. When you understand what a covenant is, then you'll understand its significance. Then you understand, oh, that's what this means. Then you will experience the peace. You experience the love and the joy that God has for you. And I'm going to talk about that a little bit more later. So let me give you one more disclaimer. So one, marriage is a covenant. It's not a contract. Secondly, and this will be the last disclaimer before we jump into the text, a godly marriage should point people to God. That's the point of a godly marriage. If you have a godly marriage, it should point people to God. What does your marriage, just, let's just think about this for a moment. What does your marriage point people to? If you're married, you understand the sound of my voice, what does your marriage point people to? Do people see growth in your marriage? Do people see, oh, I see two people that are giving one another something that they don't deserve. Do, do, do they see mercy in your marriage? Do, do they see unconditional love in your marriage? Do they see repentance in your marriage? Do they see people that are willing to confess and say, I did something wrong to you, and I, and I understand it upsets me because I realize I disappointed God for and that hurt you. Do they see that? Do they see forgiveness in your marriage? Do they, do, do, do they see someone that says, hey, 
God is forgiving you. God is forgiving me, so I'm, I'm forgiving you in the same way. Do they see honor? Do they see sanctification in your marriage where because of the way you treat one another, you're getting better and you're becoming better and closer to one another? Do, do they see that? Because when you sign up for marriage, you sign up to be a witness for God. Here's the thing that you need to understand about marriage. God orchestrated the first marriage, and God would also orchestrate the very last marriage. Why? Because the church is the bride of Christ. See, his goal from the very beginning was for us to worship God, worship him in everything that we do. Whatever you do in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, especially in the institutions that he established. God established marriage between a man and a woman. We saw this in the creation. This is what he did. He is the one. God is the one that made this institution. He's the one that brought these two people together. That's why the greatest gift you can give your fellow image bearers, married people, is to show them the hope of your marriage. Because everything else, listen, everything else that we do will fade away. Even your marriage. When we get to heaven, we won't be married to one another. We'll be married to Christ. So even your marriage on earth should point people to Christ because even your marriage at some point is going to fade away. Our hope is in Christ because knowing him, that's what eternal life is. Now, I could go on. I could go on, but but I want to jump into this text today because, look, it's only one verse. Our text today is only one verse, but it's packed with so much heat. So let's jump into it. 1 Peter 3, 7 says this, likewise, Likewise, husbands, live with your wives understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. See, I, I want to remind you first that this is not all that is required of godly husbands. Um, I encourage you to read Ephesians 5 and Genesis 2, Mark 10, 1 Corinthians 7, encourage you to read all those things and understand what it is that a godly husband is supposed to do. But Peter right here is trying to exhort the men in this church to remain set apart by conducting themselves in a way that's contrary to the standards of the world that they're in. And actually, it should be the way they should be living in step with the gospel that they say they love and that they ascribe to. So in other words, Peter is saying, I want you to be more like Jesus, is what he's saying. And there's a lot to, un, to unpack in this verse. And we actually see two commands, then we see two reminders. So I want to talk about those two commands, then we're going to chew on those two reminders here in a second. So the first one is this. Godly husbands never stop studying their wives. Godly husbands never stop studying their wives. The text says, live with your wives. And some of y'all are like, Oh, that's easy. Check. I live with my wife. I, I got that. No, that, 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 that's not what this, this, that phrase means. It means to dwell together. It means to, to be intimate. It, that you just shouldn't just exist together. You should come together. You should be intimate. You should live together. That's what that means. See, we live in a world that has replaced infatuation with intimacy. 
That's why we see people meet each other. We see it every time in almost every movie. They meet each other immediately. They get infatuated with one another. They start living together a lot of times. They start cohabitating. And if you're from the South in the country, we say shacking up. People start doing that. And and here's the problem with that is that you cheapen godly intimacy when you do that. Because what God wants to do in, 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 in 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 a husband and wife relationship, once the relationship begins, That's when the intimacy takes place over time. It takes place over studying one another and appreciating one another. The closest you are isn't at the beginning of the relationship, right? That's how it is with us with Christ. The closest I was to Christ wasn't at just the beginning of my relationship. It's been as I begin to know him. It's it's when I fell and he still picked me up. It's it's when I got to be more in his presence at times. I'm learning and becoming more intimate with Christ. And see, that's why it says also that you need to live with your wife in an understanding way. Now, what does this mean? This means not that comes from God, understanding, gnosis, understanding. It means a knowledge that comes from God. So in other words, husbands, not any dude, not any man. So if you're any man, a husband, you don't need to be intimate with any other woman, Okay. It says, you need to be intimate, know your wife, and do this according to what the word of the Lord says, understanding way about this. So that's the, th- that's the difference between us Christians. Remember, we're set apart. We don't take our cues from the world. We understand our wives according to God's word and understanding way. So I want to jump into this a little bit further. I think in almost every sermon I talk about 1972, brother named Harold Melvin in the Blue Notes, they wrote a song, If You Don't Know Me By Now, all right? And and as soon as you heard those lyrics, some of y'all know that song. If you don't know me by now, you'll never, ever, ever, ever know me. Ooh, I can't sing the song, so that's the best I can do. But anyway, this song was very popular. Um, I heard it in the 80s because I, you know, I wasn't born when, when Harold Melvin and them brought it out. But I heard it, the first time I heard it was in 1985 when Patti LaBelle got a hold of it. It blew up on the charts. But then later in 1988, there was a group called Simply Red. It's like a European pop band. And when they did the song, it blew up and it went to like number one. So it's just funny. In the 70s, 80s, and all the 90s, this song is so popular. Um, and it's basically this guy's just trying to break down like, if you don't know me by now, you never know me. I'm just, you just need to try to understand me. And it is the worst song ever for a marriage. It, this is crazy. You, you know, if you don't know me by now, if, if, I was, if I was to say that, like, I don't even fully understand myself all the way. I'm, I'm still in counseling right now trying to understand everything about myself. I'm not the same man I was at 33 that I was at 23. I'm 43. I'm not the same person that I was back then. And here's the thing. My wife isn't even the same person she was back then. I know initially when we first got married, I I would buy my wife flowers and she'd just be like, I don't, flowers, they they wither away real fast. They kind of stink a little bit like she didn't. You know, now my wife absolutely loves flowers and cards and things of that nature. People change. We're, we're not robots. Even computers change. Sometimes they even need to be updated, right? When you see that spinning wheel of death on your computer, you know it's time, right? 
You might need a hard drive. I don't know what's going on, but there's even change in the robots, y'all. So we change. We're not the same. But see, the world will say, she's too hard to figure out. You need to move on. But here's the thing. I'm called to love my wife like Jesus loves the church. And I'm so glad that Jesus didn't say that to me. I'm so glad that Jesus didn't say, Chris is to figure out. I need to move on. I, I, I don't forget. And men, don't you forget either that you are the bride of Christ. You are the bride of Christ yourself. The whole church, we're the bride of Christ. And all that have accepted Jesus and trusted Jesus will be married to him one day. And right now, he's loving you in an understanding way. If you hate studying, you don't need to marry anybody. Because marriage is a lifelong commitment. It's a lifelong study of someone else. We spend a, long, long, a lot of our time wanting people to understand us. I need somebody that's going to understand me. I need somebody that's going to know who I am. I, I need somebody that, that is going to do that. And I'm going to tell you right now, that's the wrong mentality. Because if you don't know me by now, you will never, ever know. It's self-centered. If Jesus looked at this world that way when he tried to come and save us, he would have never saved us. That's why the Bible says while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He is the kind of Savior that didn't die for his friends. He died for his enemies. Now, here's the thing. Do you realize how much better your marriage would be if both people in the marriage constantly said, I want to get to know you better. I want to constantly, I'm going to fight to continue to know you and to understand you according to the way God has wired you and according to what his word says. See, we should seek to understand before we're understood. Just like the, you've heard this, it's more blessed to give than to receive. But guess who doesn't want, get, the kind of people that don't want to try that out they're the people that are self-centered, and they never experience what it's really like to give. It's way more blessed to give than receive, and anybody can testify, anybody that has done that and experienced that, they know that. In the same way, um, it is very important for you to get to know your wife. Fellas, look, Michael Jordan, he, he was a natural, talented person. But I'm going to tell you what, it took more than just his leaping ability and his athleticism to break down defenses to create plays, to move and advance to the next level. He would study his opponents. Um, he was the offensive player of the year one time. Um, he also examined himself. He, he knew how his teammates would play. And husbands, let me tell you in the same way, you don't have enough natural talent to make it through the seasons with your wife if you're not a student of her. Behind every I love you, you should be able to say why you love them. I used to say to my wife sometimes, hey, baby, I love you. And then she would jokingly, but not jokingly, say, why? And then it's like, as a husband, you're like, uh, uh, because um, you look nice today? You know, you, don't, you haven't really thought through, like, why do I love my wife? What are some of the things that I can say to her? What are some of the things that I, I've learned about her while I'm dwelling with her because I'm intimate with her and I know her that I can say to let her know how much I love her? And if we're honest, we're just lazy. Some of us men, we know more about the stock market. We know more about Twitter rants. We know more about politics. We know more about video games than we do our own wives. Shame on us. So basically, this passage is saying 
Be considerate. Don't be thoughtless. Be thoughtful. And I want to let you know, there's hope, fellas. There's hope. Think about, again, how your relationship grows as you get to know God better. Here's the thing. Your relationship with God is a relationship with Jehovah Jireh. It's a relationship with the God that's always providing for you, initially in the institution that he created and he called good. So don't forget this. Don't forget this. Since God is for your marriage, he'll give you power in your marriage. Since God is for your marriage, he'll power in your marriage. See, God's going to give you power for the things that he established and the things that he's put in place. The same God that gave wife will give you power to love your wife. Why wouldn't he? Why wouldn't he? But we got to do things his way according to his will. Don't you ever stop learning while you're in covenant with your spouse, just as you never stop learning as you're in covenant with Christ. We'll be learning for an eternity of who Jesus is because he's inexhaustible. And in the same way, you need to, in this lifetime, you need to continue to learn who your wife is because we too, in a sense, are inexhaustible in the sense that we are ever changing and we're ever growing, so we got to continue to learn who we are. I, I, I've shared with you guys last week that, you know, recently my mom passed away and my mom and dad would have been married 59 years this year. But even as we go through some of her belongings, even though my dad was married for 59 years, he knows her more than anybody else on the planet, we still were finding things about her. We still were going through things and learning more and more about her even after she passed away. So be considerate and remember, marriage is not just about you. It's a covenant between you and God, spouse. So the second command is this. Godly husbands honor their wives. So one, never stop studying your wife. Um, but, but secondly, you need to learn how to honor your wives. Husbands, when was the last time you honored your wife? Please don't tell me it was Valentine's Day or her birthday or Mother's Day. And don't get me wrong, you should, you better honor them during that time. But those should be the icing on the cake celebrations, not the cake itself. See, the second part of this verse reads, it says, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, as the weaker vessel. Now, here's where this verse gets very controversial for a lot of people, right? So people have gotten much debate about what weaker vessel means. Um, is this speaking about physical weakness? Now, I will say that one of the theologians um, who we've been using during this whole book of 1 Peter um, um, as a female theologian that we love. Her name is Karen H. Jobes. She actually ascribes to the weakness, um, and she says that actually when Peter was saying this, this would turn heads on a lot of women, especially that were being mistreated by men in society and even their husbands physically and treated wrongly. Um, this would speak to like, no, you're not going to operate like those men in this world. And that, that's what she said. And, and then there's some other commentators that says that this is emotional weakness. And some say it's psychological weakness. And, and, and to be honest, after studying it and looking at it, I'm not 100% sure what, what that might mean. But this is what I do know. And this is what we know from the text. Regardless of which one of these you, you believe and which one that you think this ascribes to, the scripture tells us what to do with this physical weakness or what to do with this emotional weakness or this psychological weakness. It says, show honor. 
If your wife is physically weaker, show honor. If your wife is, is emotionally weaker, show honor. If she's psychologically weaker, you need to show honor. That's what you need to do. And that word honor means to show deference. It means to treat as precious, to show a high degree of dignity. That's what we're called to do in this passage. Uh, my, my sister Stephanie Johnson was breaking it. She was saying it's like China and Tupperware. Which one is more valuable? No question, you know, that China is way more valuable. But if you're going to use China to, to eat with, to throw in the dishwasher, to use all the time, what are you going to have to do with that China? You have to be extra, extra careful. You're going to have to honor that China when you're using it. Whereas Tupperware, it, it, you know, it can fall on the ground. You can throw it in there. You don't care. It, it doesn't matter what you do with Tupperware. But with China, you have to treat it as precious. Another way you can show honor is by strengthening your wife. It says when she is weak, weakness. See, when it's weak, so she's suffering. Well, whether it's suffering inflicted or suffering that she caused, whatever it might be. See, Jesus didn't look down on us when we were in our weakness. In fact, in Hebrews 4.10, 4, 4.15, it says this. It says, for we do not have a high priest that is unable to empathize with us in our what? Our weaknesses. See, Adam did not show this kind of honor in the garden after they were tempted by the serpent. He didn't treat his wife as precious in the garden. So when Eve, the weaker vessel, was deceived by the serpent, Adam was present, but he dishonored his wife by allowing his own insecurities and sin to blind him from protecting her. See, Adam was designed by God to lead and protect his wife, but instead he was led by his weakness. When Eve was led by her weakness, Adam followed suit. See, empathy with Eve's weakness would have placed Adam in a more priest-like state like we heard Jesus was in just a few seconds ago. Then he would learn how to handle his wife with care because he believes when he sees Eve in this situation with this serpent, Lord, this is you gave me and she's worthy and she's irreplaceable. And I don't want to see anything damaged when it comes to her, physically, psychologically, or emotionally. If anything, what Adam should want to do is build his wife up. That's what it means to honor your wife. So the two commandments that we, that we saw Peter give here for husbands to live in a considerate way and to show honor. Now, here's the reason why. Here's the reason why. Wives are co-heirs with us. as husbands. And secondly, disobedience to God hinders your prayers. So when you see this co-heirs in here, when you see heirs with us, when you see this, Peter's reminding us of the creation account. Adam was created first. Then out of Adam, he made Eve alongside of him so that they could rule together. And then in this, you see a picture of headship and partnership. You see that man was the first amongst two equal people. So listen, headship and partnership can coexist. It does not have to be something that, that, that works against each other. You see this picture of headship and partnership. Secondly, this truth actually elevates the status of women in a time when women were being oppressed. See, Peter is being very countercultural because he's understanding, like, listen, we're set apart. We see things differently. 
Now, for the record, let me make this very clear. Men and women are created equally in the image of God. That's why when we see image bearers, especially women, especially wives not being treated as such, we become complicit with this inferior narrative that it happens instead of equality. Likewise, Jesus, he's our head, and we'll rule together with him in a new heaven and a new earth. See, again, our marriages should point people to God. It's a mirror of some of the things that you see. It's a dim mirror, but it's a mirror where we can see some things because we're co-heirs. Because listen, we're co-heirs because we know one day, again, all of us will be married to Christ, right? So the final reminder that we see in here uh, are the consequences of hindered prayer. Now listen, you can't treat God's daughters any kind of way and expect him to grant you with your request. Now I have three beautiful daughters, three beautiful daughters. And I hope that one day they are able to, you know, marry if that's, their, if that's what they would like to do, if they like to marry. If they meet some dudes and these dudes end up being unloving and uncaring and they don't honor, honor them, and then they come up to me and ask for a request, they can just ask me for a piece of gum. I'm like, no. I mean, you, you, actually, you don't want to see me right now, man. You don't, you don't want to see me or none of that crazy uncles, right? All right? You don't, you don't, you, that, that's not what you want in your life. That ain't what you want. You want to live. You want life. You don't want, this is not what you want. All right? See, listen, God takes sin seriously, especially when it comes to prayer. In Joshua chapter 7, y'all remember Joshua, Joshua chapter 7? They had just overcome cold, but then there's Achan who, who takes some of the devoted things out of there. And uh, they go into a war, they go into a, they go into a battle uh, of AI, and, and they really should be an easy battle for them to win. But instead, they lose 36 people in this battle. So Joshua falls down on his knees in prayer, heaps ashes over himself, and is pleading to God. He sincerely is praying to God, and he himself hadn't even done anything in this situation. But he's sitting there and, he, and he's praying to God. And it's one of the few times in Scripture where you see a man sincerely praying to God. And God says, stop. Get up. You need to go handle that sin amongst you. You need to go handle this thing that's among this disobedience that's over here amongst you. And then that's what he had to do. And he had to go and he, and he finally found out what was going on. And they handled the situation. And then they were able to, to win the battles again. So that the victory um, uh, began to, to work again after they handled the sin. See, I, I, and, and listen, I, I don't want you to miss something here. The assumption that Peter makes is that godly men are praying. And, and, my, and my prayer is that men in our church are men of prayer. That, that you're making your request known to God on behalf of your family, on behalf of your wife, on, be, on behalf of your neighborhood, on behalf even of your enemies. Because listen, prayer sets you apart. Prayer is the thing that sets you apart, church. And effective prayers, God will listen to your prayers when you're obedient to him. How many of us are guilty of this phrase, I'll be praying for you, I'll be praying for you? I used to say that and then not pray for people. So I had to get to the point where I'd stop saying that. I would actually pray for somebody, then I would let them know I prayed for you. Sometimes I even let them know the verse and the scripture that I prayed over them because sometimes we have good intentions when we say that, but we never do it. So I do that for my own integrity. Secondly, another thing, men, with prayers that you should do, sometimes you need to pray out loud for people. You need to let them hear 
the scripture that you're praying over them. Hear how you love them, but especially your wife. This is something that I kept internalized for a long time for my wife and my family. It's something I'm still trying to get better at is making sure that they hear what it sounds like for me to pray over them. It's something that I have not done well over, over the years. And don't get me wrong, it, it, it's real good for people to know that you're praying for them, but it's more important that they hear it. Sometimes they need to hear it. See, I know that my wife is intelligent, but she needs to hear that from me. I know that my wife takes great care of my family, but she needs to hear that from me. I know that my wife is beautiful, but she needs to hear that from me. I know that my wife is a strong woman, but when she's weak, she needs to hear from me where her help comes from. So if we're going to bring this all in, we've learned in this one verse that husbands, you work to know your wife. You're going to build her up. You're not going to mishandle this precious gift that God has given you because it's co-heir to you and you want to be obedient. So when you make these requests known that you don't stand opposed to God in the midst of doing this. But if you're here today, and your marriage has lost its center. I want you to remember what happened when the very first marriage lost its center. After Adam and Eve sinned against God and God came to them, he asked them this question. And no matter where you are today, I want you to think about this question. He said this, where are you? Where are you? Now, God is omnipresent. He knows exactly where you physically are. So this question is asking a question of your soul. Are you willing to confess where you really are today? There's many of you out here today, even if you're not married, God wants to ask you, where are you as it relates to him? Are you willing to confess the distance between you and him? See, Adam and Eve, they were so ashamed that they, said, they looked and they saw that they were naked and they didn't even want to be in the sight of God because they were so ashamed. And God did something in that moment they would end up doing later in history. He took an innocent animal, an animal that had nothing to do with their sin. That animal was slaughtered, and he took the skin of that animal and covered Adam and Eve's nakedness. He covered them. See, listen. All throughout history, God required sacrifices like this for us to atone with him. But he never required a human sacrifice until it absolutely became the only solution. And that sacrifice was God himself. It was Jesus. Jesus would be that innocent, blameless lamb. John the Baptist would even say, as he saw Jesus walking up, he said, now behold the lamb of God that takes away the sins of this world. That's what Jesus would come to do for us. He would cover our sins and bring us into relationship with God. He would reconcile us to God. And if you would just trust him today in your marriage, in your life, he can reconcile you too. Listen, the first Adam, the first Adam was not willing to lay his life down for his wife. And because of that, sin and death entered into the world. But the second Adam gave his life for his bride so they could be reconciled and they could know what it meant to be conquering sin and death and promising in this marriage that one day you won't have to cry anymore there won't be any more pain anymore all the suffering will cease
Church, that's the kind of husband that we have. And his name is Jesus. Would you pray with me?